0: To the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were part of the special edition Day of the Dead Slam recorded on November 1st, 2019, at Wellfleet Preservation Hall in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was reunited.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Pat
2: Medina. Hi everybody so for those of you who know me you probably know because of blah 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 I have two cats but there was once upon a time when I had a girlfriend and well you know that wasn't the important part of the story I actually had a girlfriend for a while and she wanted a dog And so I was a dog person. I was also very young and stupid and just looking to please. So I said, sure, we'll get you a dog. So on Valentine's Day, we went to the ASPCA. And I got her this dog, this brown little beautiful dog who bit me. And I thought, that's a dog for me. So I brought this dog home. And on the way home, I put it down in the little park and I realized this dog was smaller than a pigeon, wow. and you know, I don't want to get like mushy about the dog or anything, but this is a story about the dog, so forget it. I'm with Ghana. So anyway, so we go to the park, and every day we go to the same park. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding? <coughs> so we go to the same park. the dog is. Growing a little bit, and he really likes dandelions. He just really wants to smell them. He's so gentle, he's such a beautiful little puppy. He just smells these dandelions, and I'm like, What the heck? And I try, like, you know, smashing his nose into them. No, okay, so he just wants to smell these dandelions. So time goes on, the puppy's getting bigger. All of a sudden, I realize this is not her dog. She kind of realizes that, too. This is my dog. I am his person. His name was Pan Eros. Pan for that mischievous quality that he had, and Eros because he was just a love. So we go through life together, this dog and I. And I'm still really young. And I'm struggling through life. And I'm trying to get on my own two feet. And he comes first. If we're going to eat, we're going to eat dog food. (laughs) kidding. But I did buy him Alpo, and it was very tempting sometimes. So time is going on. I, come, I get into harder times, housing-wise, and I'm living like on a cot in some strange man's house, and, and the dog is like, arr, arr. So anyway, I call my father, whom I'm estranged from, and I ask him, please hold my dog for me. If not, I have to get rid of him again. <laughs> I couldn't do that. So he reluctantly agrees. He lived in Pennsylvania with a big acre of land. And so, anyway, he takes the dog. The dog gets fond of my father's step niece and they bond together. And my dad calls me up one day and he says to me, Hey, you didn't tell me your dog bites. I said, The dog bites. He has teeth, you know, I guess. So he said, well, you know, your uncle was teasing him with her, and he bit him. I'm like, yay, you go, Pan. So anyway, well-deserved. The wind-up is I can take the dog back. And when this dog comes to me, he is suddenly a yard dog. He is big. He is brawn. He's got a collar, like, Like he like like he looks like a like a pit bull that's been trained to fight or something. And I'll tell you, when I laid eyes on him, he was the most beautiful, beautiful dog I had ever seen. So with me, we embraced, he loved me, I loved him back, and he was just like all about you're my person. And I was all about you're my dog. Well, the dog eventually passed on in life. He got, he got slenderized again, mind you. But he passed on in life. And I'll tell you, not to this day can I look at a dandelion and not think of Pan Arrows.
0: All right, welcome to the stage next, John Schumann.
3: John
4: Schumann. Hey, dog.
3: That's fine. I've had my wild strawberries. I'm not talking dessert, breakfast. No, the film. Anybody remember Igmar Bergman, Wild Strawberries? Good, good, good. 1959. An elderly uh, doctor is being um, awarded uh, an award from his university, and he drives across the country, Sweden, to accept the award. And on the trip, he realizes he's passing the town he grew up, where he grew up. And he gets off out of the car And he's mesmerized. His childhood comes back to him. He sees his schoolmates, his teachers, his parents, and then himself as a little boy. He suddenly had a sense of who he is, where he came from, and why he is who he is. I saw this movie in high school, and it really made an impact on me, which now seems amazing to me because I was closer in age to the young boy than the old man. Well, now the role's have reversed, and I had my wild strawberries on Cape Cod. My parents brought us, big family of six, to Cape Cod every summer. It was a very quiet, simpler time then. Yes, even in the summer, Patty Page would sing of winding roads that seemed to beckon you, church bells chiming on a Sunday morn. My parents brought us to Holiday House. It was a a modest little inn in Pocasset on a quiet cul-de-sac with a couple of houses. It overlooked a little cove, a little bay of the ocean, which I looked up today, and the map was actually, it's an inlet of Buzzard's Bay. We were quite near the canal. It was run by two elderly women who were so lovely. We ate on this screened-in, wrap-around screened-in porch. It was wonderful meals. And I uh, I was fortunate in my childhood to stay at a lot of inns and hotels, but this didn't seem like a hotel. It was like home. The last time I was there, I think I was about 17, I was a guest of some great aunts who live at a, lived in a wonderful cottage on a pond nearby, and to thank them, I bought them dinner at Holiday House. Amazing first for me to pay for somebody else's food. Um, A few years after that, my parents bought a house on Cape Cod, a most unusual house. It was built in 1692. Incredible history, probably one of the oldest on the Cape. And I can't, my parents lived the rest of their lives there, and I can't help but think the reason, the motivation to buy that house was our having spent years in this wonderful house of somebody else's on Cape Cod. A few years after we were there, my brother and I were leaving the Cape together, and we decided we'd find Holiday House. We were sure it wasn't there anymore. The old women had passed away. The house was probably sold, private, renovated, maybe even torn down. But I knew I would discover, I would realize that beach. That meant so much to me. My first time in the ocean, I could picture that beach. Couldn't find it. And it sort of became something in the past we forgot. And a couple of years ago, I was living, I was at my parents' house, a short time before it was sold, and um, I wanted to spend time there before it was gone. And I heard of a hike in uh, that was an organized hike going on on conservation land in Bourne on an unusually warm February day. So I headed out there, and I met the leader and told her about Holiday House. She had never heard of it, but we brought out maps, and she sort of steered me where, where it might be. And after the hike, I drove off looking for it. Couldn't find it, but Just that search just so brought me back as the man in the film to my childhood. So many vivid memories. Um, My family was a wonderful family. We had our share of tension, as I'm sure we all had. My father was a doctor. Very busy, very little time to be home with the children. But at Holiday House, it was different. Now, this is a time not only before cell phones, it was before answering machines. So... At Holiday House, my father had no professional life. It was all family, all the time. His memories brought me close to tears as I realized this was futile. I couldn't even find that beach, but I headed home. And as I turned around, there was one more dirt road, and I took a right down it. And in a moment, I was in front of Holiday House. And it was exactly as I had remembered it, to a T. And in case I wasn't sure, Right above the doorway that I remembered so well, above the door lintel carved in wood, were the words, holiday house. I was really overwhelmed. I walked around the house. There was the porch. Everything was the same. It looked like a private house. Amazingly, what wasn't the same was my famous beach, my, my beloved beach. It had changed. It was wide open. I figured, well, maybe years, decades of storms had changed the contour. But the most amazing part of this experience was standing in front of the doorway, looking at Holiday House, and looking to my right up a little knoll, a small hill was a clothesline. line. Oh, yes where we hung our bathing suit and towels to dry. But in front of the clothes line, in a wonderful aesthetic, was a small gray lattice fence. Not to show our laundry in public, I suppose, was the idea. It was gorgeous. And I hadn't I'd completely forgotten about that clothesline and the fence till that moment that I saw it and for that reason it was one of the most powerful moments of my life like the character in the film I was 5 years old back at holiday house I I didn't want to leave I was like stuck to the ground I just didn't want to go and at that moment I remembered Emily the character of Emily in our town she dies in childbirth, and on her way to her grave, she is told that she is allowed to go back to one day in her life. She can pick one day, and she can continue to live on from that day, if she so chooses. Emily picks her 12th birthday, goes back, and is is thrilled to be there, but then very disappointed to realize that nobody seems to be aware of the power and joy of being a human being. Don't people realize life where they're living it, she asks, Not really, she's told. Poets and saints, some, but not much. Emily chooses to go back to her grave. I didn't want to leave Holiday House. I didn't want to leave the joys of that time and place. I didn't want to leave my childhood. I was reunited. Now, you know, I think childhood is underrated. I think it's the most... It's the richest, most powerful, satisfying, and happiest time of our lives. I got some of that back that day at Holiday House. Thank you.
1: Hands together for Joanne Hollander.
4: This is my first time telling this particular story. Uh, in front of an audience, but all my life, my mother thought I was a psychological liar, a pathological liar. And I wasn't. I just had a pretty exciting life. And it got to the point where she would just yawn and roll her eyes whenever I told a story. So, but there are a lot of stories. And this one that I'm going to tell tonight is a story about a lover that I had Uh, many years ago. But to start the story off, I have to give a little background. My father committed suicide in 1977. It was a very tragic death. I mean, really bad. It was so bad that my brain couldn't compute it. And so basically, I went into denial and I didn't want to know about the whole thing. It just was too horrific. Everyone in Cape Cod knew what happened. It happened in Truro. Fast forward 40 years, I meet my girlfriend's brother, online, and we meet. He puts an ad in saying that he wants to meet someone that he can go to this island with. Now, the way I responded, it was was an okay-looking guy, and I thought, you know, I should get on with my life. So I agreed to meet him. Uh, But he wanted to go to this island, and I had been kidnapped earlier in my life. So going to an island, ooh, it was kind of sketchy. But I said, listen, so, so come to Montreal, you know, if you want to meet me. He did. We went to a restaurant, uh, we met, I was speechless when I met him. It was as if we had known each other in another life. So we got together, we had an amazing couple of years. And then one day I found out he had a brain tumor. And fast forward three years, he dies. It was horrible. But the joy of having known someone in such a profound way was just so gratifying. A couple of years later, um, exactly a year later, my mother had died actually a couple of weeks before he had died. So we've kept a whole series of deaths. I'm walking on the beach. He had died. Her brother had died uh, in February. And a couple of months later, I'm walking on the beach in Turo. And I run into this woman that I hadn't seen in years, and she says to me, Joanne, you know, I heard your mother died. You might want to go see this um, uh, Roland Contois, what is he? Uh, the, um, what's it called? Roland? Uh, he was a medium. You might want to go see Roland Contois. Because I just went and I spoke to my mother who had passed away the year before, and you might want to speak to your mother. Well, my mother was roaring alcoholic, brilliant, difficult. I was—I had made peace with her. It was there was no issue, but I didn't feel I needed to communicate with her. So I went to this thing. I got a ticket and I went. And it, the room was filled with couples, and I'm sitting in the back, and I'm just watching this whole group. Roland comes out, and he starts with different people. You know, he talks about your brother wants to know why you always wear that pearl necklace, and your sister, blah 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 blah. People are crying. And all of a sudden, he stops, and he says, he points, he says, the woman in the back with that zip-up sweater, I had a zip-up sweater, your father has been on my case all night to talk to you. And I think, my father? And I, I was just stunned, because I was so sure when my son was born in 1980 that he was the reincarnation of my father. He wanted a chemistry set when he was two years old. My father had been a chemist. He called me Sweetie Pie. My father always called me Sweetie Pie. And so I had no doubt that this was my father. Now, all of a sudden, my father wants to talk to me. And I was just stunned. And my, the first thing my father says is, I know you didn't come to talk to me. I know you didn't come to talk to me. I was, I just, I was stunned. And then he went on to say, you did the right thing, you stood by your mother, it was difficult, but I know you didn't come to talk to me. And I just thought, holy shit. So finally, Roland turns and he says, so who did you come to talk to? And I say, Burke, because Burke was this man. And he goes, Burke doesn't want to talk to you in front of all these people. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. I can deal with that. At least he's there. <laughs> so he goes, he works the room some more. He works the room. and All of a sudden he says, Burke's ready to talk to you. And I'm going, oh, Burke's going to talk to me. Oh my God. Oh my God. And at that point, I'm completely, I've already had this shock of my life with my dad. And now Burke's going to actually talk to me and he passed away. And so he, now the thing about Burke was he's one of these guys who could always say lots of love, but he could never say, I love you. You know, ask people like that. They can always say, lots of love, you know, lots of love. Never, never, I love you. So Roland says, he goes on, he works the room, now Burke wants, he says, Burke's ready to talk to you. And he says, oh, did I, did I say that? I Didn't say that. That, that. So he works the. he continues to work the room, and then all of a sudden he says, Burke's ready to talk to you now. So he says, but. I, have your, I need your permission to do something. So he, he comes up to me, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, what is going on? This is like the paranormal maximum, right? So he comes up, and he puts his hands on my cheeks, and he says, I love you, I love you, I love you. Do you get that? Okay. I finally, and he wouldn't let go. He would not let go until I said, I get it. And then Burke started, and he's just—he went on about how we were amazing, we had it all, and I'm just—they're am just, have completely dissolved, okay. And then he says on July 4th, because I had been seeing this red bird all the time, and he said on July 4th you're going to have an experience with a red bird, and he said, and and, and you'll see or something. So it ended up, that that, that ended that session ended, and a couple months later, I'm in Montreal in the middle of a city. It's July 1st. There's no freaking red bird anywhere. There's nowhere. There are buses and fumes and people roaring. So I get back to, oops, okay. I, can I, okay, I get, it's, I'm almost, almost done. I get back to Montreal. This is the best part. I get back to Montreal. I'm in the house in Cape Cod in Turtle, and I'm meditating next to the window, and I go, okay, smarty pants, nothing happened on July 1st. And so what are you gonna do? And I look up and four hummingbirds do a halo right in front of the window and then vanish. I said, okay, that's pretty cool. (laughs) Put your hands
3: together right now for Vanessa Vardabedian.
0: (laughs) My father, is largely responsible for Rick o. Kasich's hair. <laughs> Since I was born, my father was a master hairdresser and wig designer. Before my parents were married, my father was working for a guy called Howard Claff. And Howard Claff owned Claff's Furs in Brookline, Massachusetts. And it was a combination fur store and wig salon. <laughs> so, my father was kind of doing an, an, an apprenticeship there, if you will. So, Mr. Claff used to send my father to Korea on a regular basis to buy human hair. Right. So, you know, he, he, would, he would go often and, and come back with the hair. And he really kind of took up the wig business. And people were requesting him more and more over Mr. Claff to make their wigs and hair pieces. So eventually my parents got married, and uh, my dad decided it was time to leave and start his own shop. So he opened the Wiggery on Bromfield Street in downtown Boston. Now, my mom was gorgeous. She's 5'10", she's thin, she was like a brunette Twiggy with the class of Jackie O and the naivete of Sandra Dee. But they were so in love, and they were partners, and she was my father's wig model. So, you know, this kind of business went on, and they had me and my twin brothers, who are about a year younger than I am. And my father's trips to Korea continued, and he went over there to buy hair on a regular basis. And my dad was everything to me. I could sense when he was about to walk in the house, he could be gone for two weeks or a month, and I would know in the middle of the night that he was coming home. And I'd wake up out of the blue, and I'd stand at the top of the stairs, and he would walk through the door with these huge suitcases full of presents for us from Korea. Some of them were like those resin rings, the dead ants inside which I loved, I kept them forever, I lost them, but also clothing for me and my brothers, little mini Korean outfits, which my mom still has in a box someplace. And then my favorite were these dolls on stands wearing these silk kimonos with thick black hair styled into the shapes of flowers. So my dad continued these trips to Korea and one day, my mom got a letter from him which said, I will not be returning to the marriage. Um, another letter followed from a, another person addressed to my father, which my, father, which my mother opened, which said, um, it was from a Korean man that my father had been seeing in Korea. So. The line that my mother gave us was, your father is moving to Boston to be closer to his work, because unbeknownst to us, he had already set up an apartment before he decided to write that letter. About that time, I was in first grade, my brothers were in kindergarten, and I went to school every week and got up in front of show and tell, and I said, my father's moving to Boston to be closer to his work for about two months straight. So Mrs. Verity, my teacher, thought this was a good time to call my mother in for a chat. (laughs) So eventually we went to visit my dad. He was living in a fancy new place on Marlborough Street right near the Boston Common with his new boyfriend. And you know, my dad was like a Renaissance man. He was kind of into everything. He was an amazing photographer. He was an amazing hairdresser. He did wigs and makeup for the Boston Opera Company. He started a theater company in Boston. Um, so he was kind of a magical guy, and people were really drawn to him. Um, eventually, he moved into a larger law space on the corner of Newberry Street and Mass Ave. And this was, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s. And this is just the time Newberry Street's coming up, and there's a lot going on around there. Newberry Comics opened around the corner. The car's recording garage was right down the road, So my brothers and I would see my father mostly on weekends, mostly Sundays, but if we did stay over, we would wake up to a band of visitors in the morning for Sunday brunch. Rock and rollers like Oedipus Rex from WBCN, WBCN Boston, and Rico Kasich and Ben Orr from the Cars, and they were smoking pot or French cigarettes as my father liked to call them and pot brownies, and me and my brothers were largely kind of on the outskirts, and you know, my dad stayed pretty distracted when we were around. So we were sitting in the living room area, and my brothers got into those pot brownies one time. <laughs> and I knew it was about to happen, but they didn't know. We're sitting in the living room, and Grace Jones is on loop on the TV, and there's new wave music playing in the background, and my brothers are just tripping. That was life of my dad's house. Um, He also liked to dress me and my brothers up and set up these big photography sessions with us. And that was also really fun. Um, The time around my 14th birthday, I asked my dad, because I knew he was friends with Rick Ocasek, if I could get tickets to go see the cars. So he took me there to go see the cars, but not only that, I had like a fabric backstage pass that I could keep on my jean jacket forever. So he took me to the concert, and while we were there, he whispered in my ear, and he said, I'm responsible for Rick Ocasek's hair. (laughs) I said, what do you mean? He said, he's bald. And you can't tell anybody. And I never did, until now. When my father died, Rick was the first person I was to call on the list. That was 29 years ago. This Monday was my dad's anniversary of his passing. And, yeah, I can't believe it's been that long. Um, So when I heard that Rick died a couple of weeks ago, I thought, Wherever the hell they are now, I'm sure they're having an amazing reunion. (laughs) And every time I hear the song, let the good times roll, and the line that says, let them leave you up in the air, let them touch your rock and roll hair, (laughs) I think I know who he's talking
4: about. (laughs)
0: Uh, so, let's welcome to the stage, Dennis Minsky.
5: Uh, that was great. Best, best intro I've had in a long time. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, hi. So, these stories are, post- are supposed to be true, and what I'm telling you now is true as far as I can remember, it was a long time ago. But at the heart of this story, there is a truth that eludes me. And I'm hoping tonight by telling it, I can get closer to it or maybe you can get closer to it and can help me with it. So this story is subtle. Uh, This story is not funny like most, not very funny anyway. And this story, this is a story about something that doesn't happen, okay? So we're going way back almost 60 years ago. I'm in high school, I think I'm 15. Don't check my age. Uh, I was a terrible, stu- I was a mediocre student. I was girl crazy, I was undisciplined, I was feckless. Now we're in my physics class, I think it was physics. My worst subject, straight Ds, and those were gentlemen's Ds. (laughs) I didn't earn them. There was a girl in my class, a cute girl. She also got straight Ds. She sat right behind me, and she was the reason I loved that class. She was so much fun. We passed notes, we uh, We, eye-rolled, we snickered. Sometimes she'd kick me in the back if I said something stupid. We had the best time, we got nothing out of the class, we had a great time. Uh, I can't even remember her name. Uh, She was also in either English or history, I think it was history class with me. And I know this because I went to her house one day, and I went to her house carrying uh, books or lecture notes, if they had those then, I don't know. At any rate, I was going to help her, she was there to help me. Uh, But I remember distinctly going to her house. And the reason why I remember this so distinctly is that she lived in the black part of time. This is a town. This is 1960. She lived in a black neighborhood. And the reason she lived in a black neighborhood is that she was black. All right? So this is... Most of you seem of an age will remember 1960, this was a big deal. My high school was half white and half black. About half the white kids were in college prep, a handful of the black kids, she among them, was in college prep. I was too, for some reason. Uh, so this was a big deal. I was on her porch, never went in her house, sitting on her porch, having the best time, just enjoying her company. And here is the crux of this story for me. Here is the heart of the story that I can't get at. I never had, I was girl crazy. I ne- She was cute. I never had any romantic inclination towards her. It wasn't like I stopped myself. It just couldn't happen. It just wasn't there. Now, I was not a racist. I was involved in all those early civil rights meetings. I helped desegregate some small things, small stuff, but I went to hear Martin Luther King in person. I was inspired. I just couldn't get there. And and to this day, it boggles my mind. Now we're going to move 50, over 50 years. I went to my 50th high school reunion. Man, was that depressing. (laughs) There were uh, four or five people in walkers. uh, With walkers, there were two or three wheelchair people. Uh, There were a number of people that couldn't attend on account of they were dead. Uh, We lost one classmate in Vietnam. This is is then. And uh, again, that room was about half black and half white, just like the high school was. And even though there was mingling, there was mingling, and maybe a little more mingling than there was in 1960, but it, it was still that way. White people sat with the white people, the black people sat with the black people. But there was some, uh, there was some good, uh, that, you know that drum major guy with the plumed hat that has the baton that led all the majorettes? He was there, big plaid jacket, with his husband, we were all shocked. We were all shocked. <laughs> but then I saw her. I saw this cute girl. And she was sitting with her husband, an elder, elderly gentleman, dignified. She was, she was pretty. She had gray hair. So did I. And I went over to talk to her. I said, hey, do you remember physics? Yes, remember physics. Hey, do you remember uh, history? I think it was history. Yes, I remember history. And uh then I I I I leaned down and I I asked her, were you not thinking what I was not thinking back then? <laughs> That's not true. I the truth is I, I didn't ask her that. I couldn't ask her that. The truth is we exchanged some more pleasantries and then I walked away. And I was standing there in this room and my friends, my white friends, were at the bar motioning me over and I waved to them. And I looked at that room and the divisions and the separations and this beautiful woman that I could have known better. And uh, I saw a door, I stepped out onto a patio. It was cold, it was dark, I was alone. And the truth is, uh, I cried, only for a minute, but I cried. Um, And that's the truth. So, that's my story.
1: All right, put your hands together. Coming to the stage right now is Jair. Jair.
6: Hello everyone. This is for Dan. I met Dan in 1989. I was in i was living in San Francisco i been or I was living in P Town. I moved to San Francisco in June of 1989. I've been working in kitchens all the time cooking. But then when I got to San Francisco, I recognized that cooks don't make a lot of money. Uh, so I said, All right, I'll be a waiter. I'm twenty-one. So I went to the Trans America Pyramid building and in the on the first floor, there's a French restaurant uh, for lunch. And then at night, it turns to a, um, a club called the Park Exchange, but this bank exchange. So I went in and they hired me on the spot. But this is how green I was. I didn't know the difference between a Gibson and a Gimlet. And that really came up with a bartender. And it starts with a G. And so that was a problem. And so I knew I needed a mentor. And there was a guy there who was about 20 years older than me. He, looked, he was a spitting image of Lou Reed. And he always looked perfectly coiffed. His clothes were always nicely pressed. And I knew he was a good waiter, because one time he came back into the waiter station. And he came back, and he's lamenting on a tip he got. Here I give these ladies 25% service, and here I only get an 18% tip. And I said, wow, what's this 25% service? I've just been treating everybody the same. I got to hang with this guy. <laughs> so I, I went out with uh, Dan for a beer, and we talked. I got to know him. He'd been in San Francisco for years, or where he was from. He was telling me about these parties in the 70s, and like the bathhouses, and all this. And uh, the, what was that place Rock Hudson used to go to? On? Oh, I hate street, I forget the name. Ibeam. yeah, he was telling me about all this stuff. He got his MBA from Berkeley and um, had lived in Austin, Texas. He had his own business. He uh, ran an advertising firm for medical devices, lived near down the street from Ann Richards in Austin, had a few Camaros or whatever. And uh, then the 80s, a recession happened. Texas got hit really hard, so he's been in San Francisco waiting tables. One day he asked me to hold on a receiver uh, of his, for a stereo receiver. I said, why won't we hold on the receiver? He oh, said, I don't have anywhere to put it. So said, what about your place? Oh, he's been sleeping in his Camaro in San Francisco for a year. And I said, well, how do you look so fresh every day? One day he walked into the Mark Hopkins Hotel in uh, in San Francisco, $1,000 a night. He just walks into the club, and the guy didn't say anything to him because he looked so smooth takes a swim, gets a sauna, <laughs> shaves, go picks up his dry cleaning. I was like, oh, okay, I get it. So anyway, so working with Dan, so started there in July. And so and on October 17th, 1989, the earthquake happens, Loma Prieta, baseball. And so things get disarrayed. And so we kind of lose contact with Dan. And I leave the restaurant in December, and I don't see Dan, so I don't think about it. Uh, so it's 1989, and um, in 1990, uh, my girlfriend has our kid, and but in, we don't get uh, engaged until 1992, because she moved back, because we didn't get engaged, back to where she's from, to Scranton, Pennsylvania, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, Harrisburg, where are you, there you go. Um, so I moved to Scranton uh, in November, or I moved before uh, Labor Day, um, uh, 1992, and so it's now November. We're gonna get married, and my pa- my mother's coming up. My sisters, okay, we have to find some place for them to live, stay for this this and So, um, about a half hour away on the freeway is Montage Mountain. So yeah, we'll get them a wedding, so we'll say chalet. Yes, yeah, not snowing, but it'll be nice up there. We're on the free- beltway. We're gonna go through Wilkesbury to get to Montage. It's a half hour there and half hour back. I'm driving, and she's talking to me about wedding stuff. And I'm in the left lane. I'm going about 80 miles an hour. I see the last exit for Scranton. I say, that's a half hour there. Then it's a half hour back. Listen to this. I see, the, I see the last exit. It says, University of Scranton, Lackawanna Station Hotel. I make the, I make the exit. I'm like, yeah, we're going over here. They're staying at Lackawanna Station Hotel. I need a drink. So we go into the Lackawanna Station Hotel. And it was an old railway station that now is turned into this huge wide open air with a huge U-shaped bar so we're sitting out there, I'm having a drink, and I'm hearing these things, votive cantos, and Ave Maria, and sashes, and lilies, and things. And I'm going, yes, hmm great, wow, wonderful. After a while, I stopped doing that. And she goes, Jerry, are you listening to me? I said, hold on for a second. She goes, what's wrong? I said, that guy across the bar, that's, that's Dan. <laughs> she goes, Dan from San Francisco? or Texas in Scranton, PA? Yeah, I'm telling you right now. So I said, wait, but here he's getting ready to go to the bathroom. Oh, Jerry, don't do it, don't do it, please. Don't, you're gonna embarrass me, please. you always do this. I think going to be fine. <laughs> so he's at the bathroom, I'm like, hey, this guy, are you Dan? He turns around and says, Miller! <laughs> what the hell are you doing here? He's actually from Lehigh. After the earthquake, his mom died, he came back home to take care of her. The dad died. He moved to Wilkesbury. People from Wilkesbury don't go to Scranton. People from Scranton don't go to Wilkesbury. Why are you going to go to another little small town? <laughs> yeah. So I said, What are you You live in Wilkesbury. What are you doing here? He was in Heathrow years before for the Lockerbie thing and was stuck at the Heathrow airport with these women for a few days that he ran into in a sushi bar in Wolfsbury, and they said, let's go to Scranton.
1: Uh,
6: and I said, that's why you're here. You're crazy. So anyway, we kept in contact for a little while. And then um, we eventually, in 93, uh, we moved to Philly, and you no know, landlines, no cell phones. I lose contact with Dan. And so we're in Scranton. Uh, my ex-wife, my ex- now ex-wife, uh, she's a teacher. And so I'm like, trying to get my degree still, so I'm working at a restaurant, uh, the Stripe Bass, which was gone now, but it was 1994. It was the best new restaurant in America by Vanity Fair. But uh, swanky, swanky. Anyway, so I'm out with people, and we go out to dinner, or we went out after work, and we are somewhere for Chinese, and who's our waiter? I said, Dan, why did you move to Philly? You're nuts. Oh, I came here a while ago, I said, okay, cool. So we stayed in contact after that. I ended up staying with them and everything, and, so we never, he goes, Miller, I just want you to know we're cosmically linked. I was like, <laughs> I, I can't argue with that. So anyway, in 2005, like this, so that was like 94 9, so I went through the Marine Corps and all this stuff and kept in contact with Dan and met, you we know, all started having the uh, uh, same friends and things. And then in July 2005, um, I got a call, but I'm back on the Cape and these people from Philly called me and tell me that Dan passed away in his apartment alone. They found him a week later. And uh, so uh came back, I picked up the ashes from University of Pennsylvania morgue or whatever. And we're going to, inter Terry's ashes, okay, let's do it. Everybody's gonna be around for the Super Bowl for 90, uh, 2006. I forget who's playing, I think it was the Rams or something, I don't remember. And um, it's okay, so we're gonna dump these ashes in the Schuylkill River, uh, right near Kelly Drive, right near Boathouse Road, right? Okay, so everybody says something, and I have the ashes, and I dump them in. And there were people there who will ver- verify this. You know how clouds have these images in the sky? You dump some ashes in the water. That was Lou Re- Okay, Lou Reed or Dan. Yeah. Uh, did you see it? Yes, I see it. I see it. So I go, there he is again, and I'm saying this to Dan. I know at some point I'm going to meet you again, and I know what state I'll be in. And it definitely will not be California. Um, So
0: we have one more storyteller tonight. And his name is Matt Cecil. So Matt, you're up. Come on up to the stage.
1: All right. Anyone who has heard me talk before, um, I have talked before about uh, the fact that uh, my father graduated from college in 1964, and he got, as a college graduation present, an acre of land uh, in a little tiny town in Vermont with a little tiny ski area called Killington. Um, he and his buddies built a house there. So at 22 years old, he was working on Wall Street, uh, had his own ski house. Um, And actually, it's where, um, even though they went to the same high school, never met, um, my mother and my father actually met uh, when my mom took a winter off to ski bum from her teaching job um, in Killington, Vermont, even though they'd gone to high school together in New Jersey. Um, so we went there for our, like my whole growing up, we spent every weekend up there, every holiday up there, uh, from going from New Jersey, it was a six hour drive in the back of the station wagon, the whole works. Uh, we spent a lot of time with family up there. My, uh, my cousins lived nearby in New Jersey. They would come up and go skiing with us and, and do all sorts of stuff. Um, in the eighties, uh, my parents bought a house in South Woodstock, Vermont, um, an old, old farmhouse that was half falling down, had about a hundred acres, um, it was built in 1826, um, and it was the kind of house that, you know, you see on TV shows now, and people are like, you know, like, it was something, Chip and Joanna would buy it. Like, let's just put it that way. Um, gorgeous old house, but it was falling apart. It's the kind of stuff that nobody wanted in the 80s. Too much property, too old of a house. My parents took years and uh, redid the house completely. Um, and at the time, my aunt and uncle actually were getting a little bit older. Their, their kids were all out of the house, and my cousins are all way older than me. Um, and so they decided to buy my parents' house in Killington and kind of like semi-retire. So they were up there, they had a dog, um, and they worked part-time at different jobs. Um, and what was kind of interesting about the whole thing was I went to, <laughs> I was going to say, I went to boarding school in Pennsylvania on the Scrugal River. So I'm a little bit weirded out by that right now. Um... <laughs> So my schedule, it was a boarding school, so my schedule is always a little bit different than everyone else in the family. And also when I went to college, I went to a trimester, a school of trimesters. Um, so we had like huge vacations. It was very strange. We had from like Thanksgiving to like New Year's off. It was a very weird schedule. Um, so what I would do is, because I, <laughs> I also kind of hated Pennsylvania, but I, I really hated New Jersey growing up there. And so I kind of like never went back. And so when I was off from school, I would often go and stay with my aunt and uncle for a couple of days up at that house in Killington that I grew up in. Um, and then eventually I would kind of, you know, head over to the old house. It's a big old house built in, you know, it's like 200 years old. It's creepy. Like, as a kid, I didn't really want to stay there by my – I was a man, I guess I was, because I was in college. I didn't necessarily want to stay there by myself, but I would every once in a while, but I would usually go to my aunt and uncle's house for a couple of days. They were great. They were great cooks. Um, and you know, they let me smoke in the house cause they smoked and I thought that was wicked cool and, um, way better than my parents. Um, so like we would hang out all the time and when they would go to work, um, one of my favorite things to do was go and take their dog Abby for walks and stuff all over the place. It was in the woods. We're always in the woods. Um, and Abby was kind of like a, um, uh, uh, kind of like a, a uh, labs, like uh, kind of like a, she's like a retriever, all like eight different dogs, all mixed to one, but all very friendly. Never barked, never did anything like that. And I wasn't allowed to have any pets growing up because my dad was allergic to everything. Before it was cool to be allergic to everything. <laughs> Everything. I think my dad was the only person I ever knew who was allergic to peanuts or milk. And I think my kids now, I think there's like 15 kids in my one son's class that are allergic to peanuts. Like you can't even like, you can throw a peanut at the school and like eight kids die. So like this was way before this was all cool and hip and way before you had EpiPens and bracelets and all that other stuff. My dad used to just carry um, a thing of Benadryl, two pills, in his wallet at all times, so when he would feel something throat closing his throat, he would take those. But it would wear like in his wallet, kind of like an overenthusiastic frat boy would have like a like a condom ring. My dad would have these like Benadryl marks in his in his wallet the whole time. So we were not allowed to have any pets. Um, so this was like I was. This was like everything to me. I would get in my station wagon. We had an old Jeep that we kept at the farmhouse in Woodstock. And so we would, I would drive over there with Abby and I would get the old Jeep with the Vermont license plates on it and we would like roll down the windows. If it was warm enough, we'd take the doors off, you know, and we'd like drive up in like dirt roads. I put it in four wheel drive. We'd go exploring, we'd do all these things. And as Abby got older, it was kind of harder for me to take her on nice long walks and stuff like that. But one year, I was probably a sophomore in college. I was up there for a couple of days before Christmas. And um, I took Abby and it was still, there's no snow on the ground yet. Like the ski areas were open, but there's no snow on the ground. So we, we went for a drive, uh, we drove all over the place. And my parents still owned all 100 acres. They owned everything on one side of the street. It was, we owned the whole valley, kind of like what you could see from the house. Big open fields, big hills. Beautiful. And the house that they owned actually was, my parents were the first owners outside of the family who originally built the house in the 1800s. Um, It was the Holt family. And they actually bought it from a Holt. Um, and all of the holts are actually buried on the property. There is actually a registered cemetery on our property and all of the old headstones are kind of like, you go up this big hill, it's big wide open fields for the farm, you go up in the woods and there's all the headstones are still there. So you can read them, most of them, some of them are broken, some are whatever, but you, you, know, you inevitably you go through them and you're like, oh, that was like a two year old, you know? And you're like, that's wicked depressing. Um, but otherwise, you know, we kind of kept it nice and clean, and it was kind of in the woods, but, uh, you know, like, we had all these fields and stuff, and so we felt like it overlooked the house. We just thought, like, we were doing our jobs as caretakers and stuff, and so one day, Abby and I were, uh, she was getting a little bit older. She's, so like, probably, like, 14 years old, and we um, went around in the Jeep all day, and then we ran around in the fields. You know, the grass was nice and high, and she ran all over the place. jumped in the pond, and she just, an amazing day. We had a great time. I drove her back to my aunt and uncle's house in Killington, dropped her off, said hi to them, you know, and um, went back to the other house, to my parents' farmhouse. Um, you know, like, I was tired, she was tired. Um, and the next day, uh, in the evening, my aunt and uncle called me and asked me if I was doing anything for dinner, and I said, you know, I'd already eaten or whatever, and they said, you know, um, you know, we, we both came back from work today, um, and Abby actually had died. And It was one of those things where like when you look back on it, there's all these things from that day that we did. Like we went up in those fields that day and we ran around and we did all this stuff. And one thing in particular, when we got up to the top of the field where the uh, cemetery is, there's a whole bunch, it's in the woods, there's a whole bunch of trees there and stuff. And I was kind of looking in just to make sure it was all clean and stuff. And Abby, who never barked or never did anything, all of a sudden just started growling and she's growling at the woods, and I was like, oh, it's probably an animal. And all of a sudden, all the trees start moving, and the wind starts blowing, and they're all birch trees, and they're all rubbing on each other, and she just goes ballistic, like barking, spinning, running around. She runs into the woods, she darts out, she runs back, she runs back, and I was just like, I'm out of here. Like, I'm done, 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 and done. Like, this is freaking me out. So when I found out that she had died, I looked back on the day and I thought to myself, like, did she know something? Like, did she want to go and run in the fields and do all these things that she probably wasn't really able to Did I, like, run her into the ground? Like, was that my fault? Um, and, like, all these things kind of, like, for someone who's, you know, 20 years old or whatever, it was kind of like like, this life and death kind of like staring you in the face. Was someone calling? Was someone telling her her time was up? Was she fighting it? Was she accepting it? Was she happy? Was she pissed? Um, I don't know. And I, and I didn't really know. And it's really funny. I wasn't really supposed to be <laughs> down here this weekend to do this. Um, but two weekends ago, I was up at my mom's house in Vermont. Um, and we walked up to the top of the hill. And I had with me um, the ashes from my dog that I got a year after Abby died when I was still in college. That um, had died when we lived in Alaska, and we'd had it as ashes the whole time. And now that our kids were a little bit older and stuff like that, we just thought, you know, like, this is probably a good time um, just to find a spot for, for him to, to be. And so we went up to the top of the hill, and it's really windy, beautiful foliage um, these last couple weekends, by the way, up there. Um, and just like, just like you were saying, we opened it up and it kind of all, he blew back in our face and we did you know, we kind of laughed about it or whatever. And we're like, this is my kids like, (laughs) you know, like, this is disgusting. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, as we did that, the wind started to pick up behind us and those trees started moving and the birches started grinding. You ever hear that sound when the birch trees grind against each other? Kind of freaky, kind of, you don't know if it's going to fall or if it's just a beautiful thing or, so we figured that my dog was meeting her in a place where they could run in the fields.
0: Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito was produced by Vanessa Vardabedian and William Mullen with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance and bite it live.